Hello and welcome to Welsh Music Prize Conversations, where each nominated band or artist from the 2021 shortlist will delve deep into a chat about their body of work. Croeso i bodlediad y Wobr Gerddoriaeth Gymreig, lle mae'r tystiad sydd yn web i eleni yn siarad am ei albums. Mae'r deuddeg sgwrs yw clywed trwy Am, Spotify neu Apple Podcasts. All 12 conversations are available through the Am app, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Be sure to let us know what you think about these discussions across our social media too. Fy sy'n i wrth i'n bodda ein clywed, beich chi'n meddwl am y sgyrsiau at Welsh Music Prize. So sit back and enjoy now as Beverly Whitrick chats with the Anchoress about her nominated album. Dyma Beverly Whitrick yn sgwrsio gyda The Anchoress am yr album The Art of Losing. Right, well, I'd actually prepared a bit of an introduction because I want to seem organised for this. And also, because I feel like it's really easy for me to assume that everybody else knows a musician that I know. So, I'm just gonna introduce myself and then I'm gonna explain what this podcast is about. So, my name is Beverly Wittrick. I'm the Strategic Director of Music Venue Trust, which is a charity that protects, secures and improves grassroots music venues across the UK. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about an artist that I love and have a chat with her. And I'm here specifically to talk about the album, The Art of Losing by The Anchoress. The Anchoress being the artist I love, Catherine Ann Davis. And I was asked to just to think about what that album is. So I'm going to say what I think it is, and then I'm going to ask Catherine what she thinks it is. So I think it is both an album and a multi-art form artwork, which is a deeply personal exploration of grief, loss and anger. Critically acclaimed on release in March 2021, the album has been praised by fellow artists and embraced by existing and new fans. Catherine, what would you add to that? Thank you, Bev. That's really lovely. I actually really love your description of it as a multi-form artwork because it I think that really captures what I try and do when I make a record, when I approach an album. Um, and I know it's kind of deeply unfashionable as well now to think about albums, but I'm still so very much wedded to the album format, but not just as a kind of visual, not as a, say, an audio kind of piece of work, you know, to sit down and listen from start to finish, but also as, as a kind of visual thing too. And it was, you know, it was really important for me that the album came out in a physical form, and we were lucky enough to be able to do, oh, you've got the CD. I was going <laughs> to, the one that I always have next to my computer, just in case I have to talk about it, is the, the expanded edition. I don't know if you ever saw this. I didn't see that one, but I have been looking at the book that came in the CD again. And just because I wanted to prepare for chatting to you, and obviously I've listened to the album many, many times, and we're going to talk about that and talk about tracks on it and what have you, but... One of the things I really love about your work is the imagery is so important and in on this album the poetry is so important as well. So anyone that that's interested in the music of this, I feel needs to get their hands on a physical copy to actually see what the whole thing is supposed to be. So please tell us a little bit more about that. Thank you. Well, I mean like everything in my life from you know the leopard print to you know just doing music at all i've nicked it off the manic street preachers because uh, you know i grew up 
buying their CDs and seeing, you know, the way that they presented the, the work that they made was always alongside its kind of cultural accompaniment. So there'd be like a quote from Sylvia Plath or Andrea Dworkin to kind of elucidate what the song was about. And, and that's just, I've almost just taken that as a default mode of how I present my work too. So, you know, every song has got a quotation from it that kind of explains a little bit deeper what the song is about, you know, and if you want to kind of dig into it a bit more, you can go and look up that author or poet or writer and read a bit more and, and think about what the meaning of the song is. Um, so it's sort of like offering layers, I guess, to the listener, which is kind of saying, you know, here are some signposts for further things that you can go and explore. It's, it's not enough for me and it's not interesting for me as an artist to just make a song and put it out spotify i i kind of want to build a world and i want to i guess i guess it's just like replicate what what was there for me as a teenager with the manics just a whole universe to dive into and escape from what was not a particularly nice way of growing up um and and just yeah a form of escapism through literature through film through the visual arts and it is it is purely you know it's nothing original it is just really replicating that experience that i was lucky enough to have as a preteen with them and, and that is sort of what I've brought forth into the Anchoress, you know, and I've been super lucky to be able to do that in these kind of like deluxe formats with, I mean, even got to commission for the back cover, obviously people listening won't be able to see this, but it's um, an original artwork by Simon James, where it's all the titles of the songs on the album in a kind of book stack that's made out of vintage, I think these were Penguin this time again, vintage Penguin books. So it's, it's not just about the music for me. It's about, um, yeah, building a world that people can, that I can invite you into. Um, but I think that's really obvious from your interactions with fans as well. I mean, I actually rather brilliantly, I bumped into a man wearing a T-shirt with the stack of books from the back album artwork in Wrexham at Focus Wales. Oh, wow. In October. So that was really lovely because I'm like, oh, an Encrest fan. How nice. And we had a chat in the street because I recognised that image as being one of yours. And obviously I knew that the, the, whole, the whole world of this album, as it were, has created objects as well as the audio experience. Well, that's the great and... thing about band merch as well, isn't it? it kind of, <laughs> it's shorthand for just, you know, who's your people, where's your tribe? It's like, you can just wear well, exactly. the band and that, you know, people are kind of drawn together across rooms, aren't they? Yeah, but, it, but also I think what's really, really interesting is knowing you as Catherine and knowing you as a musician and then also seeing you as the artist, the performer, the person in the videos and the photos and what have you, and, and seeing almost the juxtaposition of that persona. Because I think like some other some of the other musicians I know, you're you're not you're not a massive extrovert when you're being you, but obviously the anchoress has to be because the anchoress is an artist. So I think to to look at all the photos and all those kind of personas you inhabit is is a great indication sort of of your process but on that kind of theme just tell me a little bit about why you are the anchoress and what that persona means well a big part of it was just not wanting to put music out under my own name because i didn't think i would be able to handle it that i wanted a, a kind of boundary between me as a person as a private human being and to not be judged 
for me as an individual, but I, I think it just allowed me way more freedom. I thought, you know, if I can adopt a persona, if I can adopt an alter ego, um, and all the artists that I loved were doing that, you know, like St. Vincent, um, just, I mean, St. Vincent was the most obvious, but it was just, and I, I think as well, I wanted to disrupt at the time with that first debut album, Confessions of a Romance Novelist, I was really interested in disrupting the notions of what female singer-songwriters were allowed to do. And this idea that all female singer-songwriters were essentially confessional and we were all bleeding into our songs and it was all really easy, diarising and there was no skill to it whatsoever. And that whole album was a kind of play on, on those expectations in that I created all these fictional confessions, these fake confessions, which again was something that I borrowed from, from literature from a French author called Hervé Hubert. Um, he wrote a kind of false confession about his own death from AIDS, actually. Um, I just really liked the idea of what would happen if you, you constructed a world of fake confession, because I was really, frankly, just pissed off and, and tired of just people saying, oh, you play piano, you play guitar, or you're like Sharon Burnett, or you're like Tori Amos, and the same old comparisons. <laughs> so again, constructing the anchoress as a persona was a way of saying, I am not an individual human being just writing from my own autobiographical experience. Although ironically, obviously the art of losing has gone and done exactly Much what more I said. Autobiographical. I, yeah. yeah. Do you know, so much of what you've just said, I'm going to pick up on on some of the questions that I did pre-prepare because there's so much in there, isn't there, about the two albums you've released as the Anchoress, your relationships with other artists, your relationships with your writing, but also Something you've just said, I want to come back to. So, whenever you're described, it is always the anchoress or Catherine Ann Davis, comma, Welsh multi-instrumentalist. And I just think that's such a brilliant moniker to have. And I want to ask you, I, I perceive that both of those things are super important to you. The fact you're Welsh, and the fact that you are a multi-instrumentalist and obviously on this recent album you also produced everything and you basically you know did so much of it yourself how do you feel that that phrase multi-instrument welsh multi-instrumentalist does say most of what you want to say about yourself as an artist or do you think there are bits that need to be added on for people to really understand where you're coming I, from i mean it did evolve on this record and i think the, the phrase then became producer and multi-instrumentalist and, and again it all comes from this idea of disrupting what we think women do in the industry um, and i i feel really super uncomfortable a lot of the time at it being thrust out there as a phrase because it feels a little bit like you're kind of boasting and then I thought, would a man think like that? He probably no, wouldn't. wouldn't. But I, I, feel, I still feel, <laughs> to be honest, super awkward about thrusting it out there in people's faces. But it, it is true. I do play lots of different instruments. It is true that I produce the record. Um, and I guess it's, it's overcoming that kind of natural inclination to, to be maybe as we're culturally conditioned as women. And again, I can't speak for all women here, you know, but we're culturally conditioned to be apologetic, to not take up too much space, physically speaking, um, and, but also metaphorically speaking. And, and I've had to overcome that. And part of that has been standing by the way it's framed in the public eye, you know, producer, multi-instrumentalist. That is what I do. People's tendency is still to call me a singer. Yeah, but that's the worst thing, isn't it? The idea that a woman can only be a singer. And of course, yeah. that's so not true of 
almost all the female musicians we admire. Wouldn't it be lovely to just rock up to the studio and just sing your parts and piss off for like the next six months? That'd be great. But uh, would it? No, because I mean, that wouldn't give you your control. It wouldn't give you the things that you want to say. And I so, mean, it'd be it'd be easy, an easier job. Um, yeah, but I, you I say that. No, I mean, I wouldn't. It, I, I mean, um, there was a short time when I was first starting out when I was on an option on a development deal with a major label, and essentially that's what they wanted me to do was to just sing. Um, and I used to come away from the, that, those demo sessions crying um, because, you know, what they'd heard and what they loved was all the demos that I produced and made myself. And I thought, how did I get here? They liked what I did and now I'm in a room singing and everyone else is doing everything else and I'm not even allowed to play anything. And it was deeply miserable. And I think that's what kind of, what comes behind all of this momentum to want to thrust that out was the phrase that people see at the top of the press release. But again, as I say, I still feel really awkward about it. And isn't that terrible that still now I'm a little bit apologetic for just saying what it is that I do. No, um, but I, I, I think it's, it is confidence. And yeah, I think you're right. We kind of have been conditioned to maybe hide our light under a bushel. But I, I feel as a fan, that this album has really, really helped raise your profile. And um, I do feel the Anchoress is in a different position in 2021 than previously. I mean, I was a massive fan of the first album. And in fact, I have to say it was another musician who recommended that I listen to it. It was lovely Tim Arnold, who was raving about mm -hmm. it on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, I'll give that a listen, of course. And then I bored all my friends by saying, have you heard this album yet? Um, but I do feel that The Art of Losing has ramped that up a bit. So I'd like to talk a bit more about specific questions about the piece of work that is The Art of Losing. Um, I wanted to ask you, because we've kind of covered some of the questions that I had, but how much you feel you as an artist obviously you've talked about becoming a producer which you weren't on the first album i co other... i did co-produce the first album it's just that that was not amplified in any of the press ah okay so that's a progression then amplifying that so what other things would you say are notable of your progression from your first album to your second album as an artist it was just a completely different creative process um and part of it was by circumstance and then I was touring a lot with Simple Minds at the time so there wasn't the opportunity really to work with other people or collaborate and then the nature of the material that I was writing it was incredibly personal and deeply awful time in my life I don't think I could have sat in a room with other people um, and also some of the things that had happened to me around the promotion of that first record and just being drowned out and being erased from the narrative. You know, I, I'd spent three years in a studio making that record and no one talked about me producing it. And I found that deeply frustrating and confusing. And so it was a lot of things that were partly by design and partly by accident came together to mean that I, I kind of wrote and produced it alone. And it was a lot of hours spent sitting alone which was a very different process to the confessions, which came about a lot through sitting in a studio with a live band, playing with a live band and recording that. And it couldn't have been more different for The Art of Losing. Um, you know, it's me playing with myself. It's a one man band, essentially, apart from some of the tracks um, have a drummer on and some of them have an additional bass player. But 
apart from that, it's me, myself and I multi-tracked many, many times. So um, I, think, I think the promo for the album kind of amplified that because you gave so many in-depth interviews about what the album meant to you and, and some of the subject matter and things. So do you feel more seen now? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think a part of that as well was sort of the changes in social media at the time. You know, I spent a lot of time on Instagram, you know, live streaming from the studio, doing kind of little sort of behind the scenes. Here's how I'm doing this thing with editing this piano or here's the effects that I'm using. Here's my racks. Here I am mixing. Um, I think there was a lot more social media visibility around my process. Um, and then I think there were some... I mean, I don't have a big team around me, but the conversations that we were having with my very small and loyal team were about what's the story behind this record? And the only story was just how it was made. Um, and I think it accidentally hit a kind of zeitgeist moment, I guess, where I think we are trying to amplify more of the women that have... I mean, I, I pretty much only know female producers and engineers and mixers. They've always been there. I mean, there's only, we're only 2%. Of the, of the industry, but it, it's not as if we weren't there before, it's just I don't think there was a visibility. So there was again this whole collision of, I think, a zeitgeist moment where people are more willing to kind of talk about it. There were more magazines willing to cover me talking about gear, talking about production. Um, yeah, it was so refreshing, isn't it, to, to the fact that you're being asked. The fact that you're being asked geeky questions about synthesizers. It's great for me because <laughs> there's nothing more that I like than to talk about preamps and microphones and amps. And, the, you know, I could talk all day about the, the process behind my recording chains. I love that. I just bore people to death because most people aren't interested in it. Um, and I was just enormously surprised, as I say, that people hadn't realised that's what I'd been doing all along because of various reasons that hadn't been amplified by the label on the first campaign and I think in fact if anything was discouraged it was sort of like, you know Catherine why do you keep talking about yourself as a producer because but but, because, but but there is there is something of a schism isn't there between you looking very beautiful in photos and you being a complete geek about kit I mean I don't see uh, I don't know what does a producer look like What's the schism? I think that's the no, thing. No, but this is a perceptive thing, isn't it? Why can't the beautiful woman also be an absolute geek? Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I guess there's, again, the question of I don't see myself like that. I have always seen myself as a geek. You know, that's my experience growing up, as I've spoken about in a lot of the songs. You know, I'm not, a, have never been a popular person. You know, I'm autistic. That can have a massive impact on your social experience at school. Um, it's lovely now that people say nice things about the way that I look, but that was certainly not my experience growing up. Um, You're terrible at taking a compliment. Thank you. But I guess it's, but it's not my internal landscape. It's not, um, yeah, it's not a big part of my lived experience. And like I say, it's, it's lovely that people enjoy the aesthetic expression of the anchoress. It, that's great. But for me, the most important thing is, is, is the music. But that's an extension of that is, I guess, sort of what I'm saying. Um, so well, I it love goes it when... back to, no, it goes back to what we were talking about, what the whole piece of work is, the whole artwork. So, you know, because you're not strong armed into doing a press shot because you've made an album, so you have to, because for you, it is part of the whole product. Then I think it does 
it does make you complex to get your head around if somebody looks at one part of it and then goes, well, hold on, what, she played all the instruments? Or would she wrote it all and she produced it all to you, which seems like the most natural thing in the world. Because I'm a control freak. (laughs) Well, yes, but to someone else, they they might be surprised. So, So then that's a really good thing if people are listening to more about you or seeing, as you said, the brilliant film clips, because you do share lots of process things and it's very accessible and it's it's really revealing. And I think your fan base really appreciate those sort of little glimpses into behind the scenes stuff rather than just getting a final product. So I'm going to go back and ask some questions about the album and the way it was created. I'm going to have to try and remember it. I'm getting my, my book out. <laughs> well, I think they'll be quite easy because they're not, they're not really nitty gritty ones. They are ones about kind of how you conceived and put the album together. So when I was listening to it over the weekend, again, just kind of with this chat in mind, it really struck me that it was a really interesting decision to place instrumental tracks at the beginning, middle and end of the album. And it made me want to ask you why, but it also made me think of other artists that I love that do instrumental work, but also write songs, shall we say, in inverted commas, and whether you have aspirations for your career to be someone, someone like Ed Harcourt, who, you know, has produced a couple of instrumental albums recently, as well as working with lots and lots of other artists and having his own albums, his lyric based albums and dipping his toe in soundtracks. And, you know, where does the whole instrumental thing sit with you? I mean, I guess it comes from my kind of musical background in that I grew up playing in orchestra. Um, so my I'm classically trained and that's sort of my f- and, and I trained as a, a classical dancer as well. So my earliest kind of interaction with music is is, is instrumental. And what I think there's you something play in an orchestra flute. Uh-huh. Okay, that I didn't know. Yeah, no, flute's my first instrument. So I started playing the flute when I was seven. I got really, really good at the flute very, very quickly. Um, And then started playing like National Youth Orchestra by the time I was 11. Gave up by the time I was 14 though, because it was was a hill I climbed and then I was kind of bored by it and then picked up the guitar. But (laughs) but it underpins what I do because I've got that classical education. Right. If, if that makes sense. So I think it's partly that. Part of it was a big fuck you to kind of commercial considerations, because can you imagine the conversation of the record company? You're going to start the album with an instrumental that sounds nothing like the rest of the album. It's the first <laughs> thing that people are going to hear on Spotify. We did have some discussions about maybe leaving it off the digital version of the album. Oh, no, I love it. And it's also, it's also partly, as, again, it's, you know, my love of the way that novels are constructed that mm. have a kind of prologue and epilogue. And for me... I always think of my albums as, as, as a little bit like books and structure is really important to me. Um, there's an element in, in which I think of it as a film as well. So it's all about leading the listener through a narrative. And so for me, it's very natural to have a, a prologue and epilogue. Um, it, it's, there's so many reasons behind why I do these things that aren't necessarily conscious at the time. But, but I think a big part of it is just creative freedom. You know, I don't have a major label breathing down my back to do things a certain way, you know, to start it off with a big single. Um, I've I've just been able to, you know, the record company didn't even hear this until it was completely finished. Um, So I I just do what the hell I like and and what the hell I like is this. (laughs) That kind of answers my next one then. So 
going with the idea of track order and narrative, the very first lyric that you hear is, ouch, this is going to hurt. Mm-hmm. And I, I, my question for you is that, is that an intentional scene setter? Yeah, I mean, I didn't write the songs in a particular order to know that that was going to be first. But when I come to think about track ordering, I do think again about, as I say, overall narrative framing. Um, it's, it's much more similar, I guess, to how, how a director would think when they're making a film. What am I leading the, the reader into? And their verbal cues are really important. I don't know if you also noticed the final words on the album too, which are, for once in your life, just let it go. So we go from let it hurt yes, to let it go. Yes, of course they are, yeah. See, that didn't strike me as strongly, I guess, because I was... Because I know track order is very important to an artist that wants to create a whole album and doesn't want to just talk about singles. I guess I was looking more at scene setting, but but yes, the final track is is always important in that it's what you leave your listener with, isn't it? So a final lyric or a final musical interlude is almost sort of bringing bringing to an end the the process. Yeah, and I wanted to lead. The, I guess I'm leading the listener through the stages of grief to some extent. So we're coming straight in in the maelstrom, you know, this is going to hurt what's about to happen to you. And then by the end, there is some sense of resolution or, or, or resignation to the situation. Um, so I was trying to, I mean, the very process of making the album was me making sense of a lot of things that were happening to me. Um, and the structure reflects that on some level. It's, yeah. I, I'm always making it sound overcomplicated and I don't want people listening to sort of feel put off in any way because actually you can just listen to it as a record that you can dance to um you do not have to engage in any way with the context or background of what I'm writing about and that was always present in my mind too when I was making it I didn't want it to be a difficult listen I wanted it to be something that bound people together and almost to find some sense of the joyousness of life in the midst of death that was really important to me um so again it's those multiple levels you can choose how much you engage with the album at what level you want to engage you can have just you know like the bronze membership you can just listen <laughs> and sing along and enjoy the hooks and dance well, I, I, I think that's really important because some people don't really sit down and listen to albums anymore yeah i mean i i do know some younger people that that don't perceive an album like a book in the way that other music fans do you know and so i think that's right and and you've had some really strong singles um that obviously have been scene setters. So my next question is about the exchange. I was going to say, but notice about the singles though, and that I refuse to take off the segues. So if you listen on Spotify to a single track, it doesn't smoothly go into the beginning. You hear the tail end of the last one. But then you see that that's so interesting, isn't it? Because the number of times I do listen to Spotify and you hear things on shuffle and then I get really cross because they don't lead where I think they're going to go because they don't have that segue into the track of whatever album they're from. So yes, a single has to work in its own right, but it also has to sit in a context on the album, doesn't it? Yeah, but the exchange, you were gonna gonna talk about that. I was, okay, so it's a track I really love because I really love the blend of your vocal with James Dean Bradfield's vocal. And obviously this is not the first time you have recorded with this particular man because you have a long history of working with Manic Street Peaches, don't you? But I do feel it's it's a really strong single. Um, and I feel that also it ramped up attention for the album, not only because of its strength 
sonically, but also because of that association with Manic Street Preachers that, that hopefully brings more people to you because it, it's kind of seen like an endorsement, isn't it? Definitely, Can you just yeah. tell me tell me a little bit more about the relationship and, and how you work with, with James or, or with the band? Yeah, I mean, so the relationship with the band is obviously for many years was parasocial in that they didn't know me and I was a fan. Uh, you know, I'm 11 years old listening to them and they're shaping my life. They have no idea who I am. They've never met me. Um, very briefly, I met James for the first time when I joined Simple Minds, who happened to be one of his favourite bands. Um, and I met him at the Key Awards, I think this must have been back in 2015. And he came up to me and he said, oh, you're in my favourite band. And I said, you're in mine. Thus began a beautiful friendship. He's just such a, a kind and lovely man. They, they asked me to support them in 2016 at the Eden Project. And that was the first time I sang with them as well. I duetted on Little Baby Nothing. And I think I've sung that with them, I'm not sure how many times since, a lot, supported them a few times. Um, then I sang with Dylan and Caitlin on their last but one record now. So Resistance is Futile. That came out, I think it was in 2018. And it's just really been, it was partly like a kind of a jokey repaying of the favour. I was sort of like, oi, James, you know, sang on your record. Well, like... Do you want to sing on mine? How about you sing on <laughs> And he also plays guitar on Show Your Face as well. So I got two for the right. price of one, which was very generous of him. Um, but for me, it's, it's weird because even though I had recorded Dylan and Caitlin for their record previously, this felt like something different because he was doing it for my record and it was like a song I'd written. And you never think that the person that you idolise as a kid is going to sing your song. It's that different... is pretty immense, isn't it? And his voice is just so incredible. Um, it's just... Um, and it's quite you know intimidating as well when you're producing the record to be sending back notes to your favorite singer and i and i and you know me bev i did of course <laughs> james and i are probably quite similar personalities as well so i was treading a fine line there when i did that yeah um but he was very generous with his time and um yeah it's just complete i still you know i don't listen to my own music anyway because that would be a bit weird but you know if i ever do sort of end up listening to this track accidentally or because I'm doing something you know work-wise it's so surreal it's just so bizarre it's like James and the Mannix are singing my song just, <laughs> I can't I don't want to get over it I'm still a fan yeah, but then it's a relationship isn't it it's not just like a thing that happened out of the blue I mean I'm assuming that you hope to work together with the Mannix in future and that you may collaborate more and have James sing your songs and you might sing James's songs and I hope you so. know yeah, it's I mean, I was... very much about a musical relationship yeah and anyway, I was supposed to go out on tour with them on the tour that's just happened you know in, in September October but obviously I, I'm still shielding so it wasn't possible in the end unfortunately you know it just wasn't meant to be um but I'm certain that you know Hopefully they'll ask me again. <laughs> oh, I'm sure Hopefully. they will. And, you know, it is an evolving relationship. And it's, it's, it's a really lovely thing to have sort of graduated from being a fan to being a friend and to being a collaborator. And, you know, I value them enormously, not only on a musical level, but also just as people. I think they set a fine example for how to be a successful musician, but still retain your values. You know, the amount of work that they do for charity um, and they do it so quietly as well. A lot of their generosity is yes. 
is, is, is really under the radar and they're just great human beings. And we can't say that for everyone in the music industry, sadly, um, but they are as nice and as brilliant and as decent as you would hope them to be. You know, they say don't meet your idols, but you know, in this case, they're wrong. Well, that's really good to know. And obviously for you as a Welsh musician, working with other people who are really proud of their Welshness is, is also good for your for recognition of you also being Welsh, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I felt a massive disconnect from my my Welshness, if you can put it like that, for a long time until actually I discovered the Manics, so like as a preteen. Right. I, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time in Wales back and forth, obviously, because a lot of my family is still there when I was growing up. But it was really as a teenager that I kind of reconnected with that part of myself. I felt very much as, as you, everyone does as a teenager, I didn't really knew, know where I belonged. I didn't really feel as if I felt displaced. And that really didn't make a lot of sense to me for a long time until I understood that, that I was displaced. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a really, like as you said before, it's a really big important part of my identity that I think I always foreground as if you need to understand who I am and what my values are and where I come from, what's important to me, you know, it, that does kind of sum it up and I, th I think you know my grandma always used to say to me you know being Welsh is about you know having poetry in your blood and, and music in your bones and that is that's yeah lovely. to me that's my definition of Welshness as she kind of brought me up to, to think about you know none of my family are musicians but there was always that inherent love of poetry and words and books you know I get my love of books from her she was a massive reader and um yeah, I think even though you might be geographically dislocated from your origins, you can connect with them through the culture, um, which I have been doing by learning Welsh as well for ah. the past two years. Well, I, I noticed you did your thank you did do your thanks in Welsh on the album uh, as well. I am I mean, it's really really difficult language to learn if you're not immersed in it, if you're not around speakers. Um, I find it really really difficult um, long term. My plan is to move back. It's the longest I've not been home, obviously, because I've been shielding now for nearly two years. It, it is, it's a wrench to not be yeah, there. Yeah. You always get that feeling just going over the, the bridge where you just, I can't explain it. You just, <laughs> you just feel it's like a rush of emotion and just, um, there's no place like it. And I, I actually, I'm getting quite emotional talking about it. it Let, let's, let's change the subject because I, I do think it's really important to talk about, as I say, it's in that Welsh multi-instrumentalist label, you know, and, and you are proud of that. And your work with the Mannix is brilliant. You also have a number of other sort of high profile collaborators as well. And I think what's really lovely for an artist at your stage of the career is the obvious respect from fellow musicians um, who work with you. and one of the delights of this difficult two years we've just been through was that a project that you'd done earlier also saw the light of day in 2020 and that was your album with Bernard Butler. Yeah that had been sat on the shelf for so long in fact you know it was one of the he was one of the first people that I collaborated with when I was kind of trying to start out in the industry and, and nothing had ever come of it we sort of had a few songs no one was interested um, we kind of just over the years occasionally chipped away at it for our own pleasure and just sort of were sitting on these 10 songs that we both really liked but no one else seemed to think were any 
good or had any interest in. Which is insane, actually. Now the album is out and it's so amazing. Just goes to show you how insane the industry is. Um, And then it was just, you know, to have a good fortune that Bernard knows Pete Perfides, who runs the Needle Mythology label. And we kind of jokingly said, well, it's a bit of a lost album, isn't it? Because Pete normally only puts out records that have come out and then like never been on vinyl and he sort of finds lost records and gives them a new lease of life. It, it was a bit of a joke that Bernard and I had, which was like, well, it is a lost record because it's never bloody come out at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, eventually it came out in the middle of the pandemic, which is nuts. Um, you know, it's such a shame that obviously we haven't got to play it live for those reasons, but a, a really lovely space to be able to do that in because... For the longest time, I think neither of us thought those songs would ever be heard by anyone but us. Um, and I'm so proud of that record that, that we made. And it's, you know, what we were talking about earlier about wouldn't it be lovely to just turn up at the studio and sing? Well, actually, my experience with making that record with Bernard was a lovely experience like that. You know, I didn't have to wear the hat of producer and multi-instrumentalist. And I think it's a more interesting record for that because it's not an Anchorest record because I am wearing a different hat and it's a different dynamic and I think you know as a control freak it's really important to let go of that control sometimes to do something different um and produce work that it it feels different because I'm not doing what I always do it it is very different than your Anchorest stuff but I I do also really love it but could just say if people who are listening to this because they're interested in the Anchoress, if they want to listen to your album with Bernard, what do they need to look for? Because it's not released under the Anchoress at all. No, so that's Catherine Ann Davies and Bernard Butler, In Memory of My Feelings. That's the collaborative album. You can, I don't think you can find it on vinyl anymore because it's sold out so quickly, but I think there are some stray CDs out there and obviously you can find it on streaming services. And I hear a whisper that they're looking maybe at trying to repress it on vinyl. Oh, well, that would be fantastic. I've only got the CD at the moment, but it's in my car and gets played an awful lot. But and also, if you if you want to listen to it on streaming, it's listed under Bernard's name a lot of the time. That's the easiest yeah, way to find yeah, it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Or look for, so Catherine Ann Davies and Bernard Butler. But if you look for Bernard Butler, you'll find it under his his profile. Yeah. Brilliant. So have you got any further collaborations sort of bubbling under? Have you got anything you're allowed to share or is it all quite quiet at the moment? Or? I mean, there's there's a few things that have kind of been waiting to come out for a while. There's a second Dark Flowers album. So Dark Flowers is a bit of a kind of supergroup, a dark country supergroup um, that I contributed to the first album on. And I, I've co-written, I think there's three tracks on a new record that who knows when that's going to see the light of day because the pandemic wow. has obviously had a big impact on release dates. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of women that I love and admire at the moment. We've got kind of talks of collaborations in the pipeline. I'd love to maybe even just do a whole record that is just collaborations with other women. Um, that's something I'm mulling over at the moment. But I, I honestly don't know. I'm, I'm having a little bit of a kind of enforced break from creating because it has been an unrelenting non-stop chain since like 2014 or I haven't stopped at all either you know producing other people's records writing for other people doing my own stuff touring um and you've got to fill your cup up again well absolutely you have been so busy but also the fact that you are still shielding is going to make it much more difficult 
to progress things at this stage. So maybe, although that's challenging, it is a good thing in terms of recharging. Actually, it's the, the strange thing is that shielding has not in any way affected my ability to work because I'm so lucky that I've got my studio at home. You know, I've built yeah. this environment in which I made the art of losing. And God, did I breathe a sigh of relief that I had done that because I'm completely self-sufficient, you know. I can record remotely with other people if I need somebody to do some drums for me. Um, I can make a record and never leave the house again. Um, but shielding has impacted me, I guess, from the perspective of I'm not really interacting with the outside worlds, culturally speaking. You know, I'm not going to galleries, I'm not going to the cinema. You're not meeting people. And I think you do get a bit depleted creatively in that regard. But actually, I say what the, one of the great things about the pandemic, I think, has been going, gone to show that you don't have to, you know, be in London. You don't have to be in big studios to make records at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true. Although as a fan, I'm very much looking forward to next spring and very much hoping that you do tour. I'm crossing everything, but this is going to we're not going to have to postpone again. Obviously, no one can foresee new lockdowns or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I'm going to be out on the road from March on and off until May, um, finally touring The Art of Losing, which is just frightening and brilliant at the same time because it's such a complex record to do live you know I'm having to clone myself in the form of other musicians on stage to be able to bring it to life which is bloody expensive and um difficult but it's going to be it's going to be amazing when I get to do it I, it's going to be emotional I think yeah I bet you're going to get that right let's go back to the album so we just talked about the exchange so that led me to ponder the question of singles more generally. And because you've had a lot of artistic control on this album, I was wondering two things. One, how you decide what, sh or you and your team presumably, because I know you make a lot of your music alone, but you do have a team, how you decide what should be released and whether the position in the track order of the singles is important or whether you are much more interested in the narrative than you are as to, you know, whether the singles should be one in the middle, one in the beginning, one at the end type thing. I mean, I guess the, the biggest influence on track order for me is still Kate Bush's Hounds of Love in that, and I did this with the first record too, I always front load an album, not out of commercial consideration, but just because that's what Hounds of Love does. You know, it has... Yeah. The singles, and then yeah. you flip it over and you get the ninth wave. So for me, I'm just stuck in that as being the epitome of the perfect. Oh, that makes order. a lot of sense then, yes. Okay, but obviously, <laughs> obviously, commercially, that's also not a bad idea too, especially in the age of streaming. To be brutally honest, um, the, the choice of singles, I, I entrusted my radio plugger to, to okay. choose that, but we didn't disagree. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, but you have to kind of trust the people that are going out there to kind of deliver those singles to the people that are hopefully going to amplify what you're doing to make those decisions. And we, we'd all come to the same conclusion about the same four tracks being, you know, the ones. I don't think anyone was kind of saying 5am, definite single. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. I mean, wonderful Although track, we... slightly tough subject matter for a single. Yeah, it has been played on BBC Wales, actually. Well, that's good to know. 
it has it has and obviously it had its moment you know the week the album came out as well we did did decide to kind of um put it out there in the um just it just felt like the only time to do it really but yeah it was it was always going to be you know show your face the art of losing the exchange and unravel were always the four that were kind of in my mind they were the up-tempo tracks um they were the potential singles and and kevin my radio plugger very much agreed in fact he said he thought it was the only album he'd heard for the last 10 years that had five singles on it so he was very complimentary well that is very nice to hear and i'm, I'm glad you took the compliment because as we know that's not your forte um so that, that brings us on to the art of losing as both a track and the album title do you consider it a key track over and beyond it being single material or the decision the decision to use it for the name of the album as well was that based on the concept for the album rather than it the fact it is also a single because i grew up in the 80s and it was really interesting that a lot of albums were you know obviously one of the singles was called the same but every so often you'd get an album called something completely different and then you'd later found out that it was a track that had been dropped, but they liked the, the title, so they still kept it for the album, or the album was something sort of slightly more esoteric than any of the tracks. Yeah, I mean, I always do it this way. Like, I know what the album's going to be called, and then I write the track for the uh -huh. album. So Confessions was the same. Um, okay. And I knew the album was going to be called The Art of Losing, and The Art of Losing was actually the final song that I wrote for the album. Oh, wow. Um, but I knew it, so it's like the explainer track, if I can call it that. Explain yeah, track. well, so, that's what I wondered, but I'm I'm really surprised it was the last album, the last track you wrote. The night before I was going into the <gasps> studio, actually, I was a bit like, shit, I've not finished. I've, I, yeah, I hadn't. I left it till the last minute, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like your homework. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't written the chorus actually when we recorded the drums. Um, and I keep saying we. When I recorded the drums, stop saying that, Catherine. See, I go back to these... Sort the of, royal we, Catherine. The royal... When, well, obviously, I didn't play the drums, so it is we. But, yeah, I hadn't written, completed the song. But, yeah, so the explainer track, you know, explains what the album's about, you know, what the key ideas are, which was, you know, was there some purpose to losing my mind? What did you learn when life was unkind? It's These are the main themes of the record, you know, what happens to us when we go through really awful things you know what's what's the point of suffering essentially yeah um put to a a, a lovely disco beat um, <laughs> but it's um yeah it's like the key if that makes sense it's the key in the lock that unlocks well, the meaning absolutely. of the record which is why i can't believe that you did it at the final hour because i also think it's a really key track in terms of musical influences i mean you, you're very open about musical influences yeah. and I was delighted to find that you've even got a Spotify list of like influences for the album. Yeah. Because Here's where I nicked this bit from. Here's well, because you're that. so open about it, yeah. which not all musicians are. But... Well, I'm a, I'm a 1975 fan, you know, I'm a postmodern child. So I'm like, there is nothing new to be done except for in the way that you collide things together and fuse things together. Everything's been done before. But, I, I, you know, 1975 got a lot of you know, flack for this, but it's like we're living in the 21st century it's like you can only draw on the melting pot of everything that's come before and i wear my influences on my sleeve proudly so, so my question about that was are you aware at the start of songwriting that you're going to reference a certain artist or does it evolve as the songwriting process goes on it's a very natural evolution i mean 
and hence why it kind of makes complete sense to me that I wrote the title track last because I couldn't have written it before until I understood what the album was about and what the journey was that I had been on and what I wanted my overall kind of message to the listener to be. I couldn't have written the explainer song because I didn't know. Right. I knew it was an album about loss and grief, but I didn't know what the lesson was from that. So it had uh-huh. to be the last song that I wrote because I didn't understand myself what I had been through. It's a bit like your final session at therapy or something. You can't rush the journey. Um, and it's the same with influences. You know, it was naturally what I was listening to and absorbing. You know, at the time I was playing a lot with vintage synthesizers because I was in Simple Minds replicating a lot of their kind of, you know, late 70s, early 80s kind of sounds. I was listening to a lot of Talk Talk. Um, the associates there was a lot of 80s kind of records in there Depeche Mode is always on my playlist you know they never leave um (laughs) and you're very open about that yeah and The Cure again because Robert Smith and I had engaged in a little bit of kind of correspondence at that time as well so everything that I do is is quite organic it's a response to what's happening around me and in my life I don't at the beginning of making this record I had started a completely different record and there are four songs I had begun that were a totally different record that will okay. never see the light of day ever. Okay. Because all of these things happened to me that threw me on a completely different path. Um, but I didn't sit at the beginning of the process ever thinking that I would make a deeply autobiographical record about the things that had happened to me. God, no. Never think of anything worse to have done. <laughs> And yet somehow, I mean, even right at the end of making the record, I almost took the song 5am off because I so, didn't want people to hear it. I was going to ask you this later, but I'm now going to jump ahead a little bit, which was, was the process of making the album cathartic or, so it's a several part question, was making it cathartic, was releasing it cathartic, do you need to play it live for catharsis to sort of be complete? Or was catharsis never part of the rationale for such a personal album? The last one, because I, okay. I, I'm completely refute the idea that songwriting is therapy. Therapy is therapy. And believe you me, I had a fuck ton of therapy, um, right. tra- trauma therapy um, for, for complex PTSD and lots of other stuff that had happened um, as well. Th- songwriting is not a substitute for therapy and it is not therapy. And I, cannot repeat myself enough about that because I think it's a really dangerous equation to make that we as artists should not perpetuate this idea that you have to suffer to create great art. When I was at the depths of of my deepest suicidal ideation trying to make this record I couldn't even get out of bed let alone record or write a song Um, and I want to be really clear about that that it's not because of the things that I went through that I made this record it was in spite of um you know, and there were many times when I wasn't sure I would make it through. So, so it, yeah, definitely not cathartic. I remember sitting down listening to the mastered tracks in a car park of a supermarket and just hysterically sobbing. And that was just after I finished it, which is sort of like February 2018, 2018, yeah. And I, I couldn't have released it then. I needed time and I needed space. Um, and I, it was just, it was not the right time. And 
then lots of different things were going on and it meant actually that then it wasn't released for two years and that worked out quite well for me because I think it would have been a very different prospect to have sat down and talked about the record when I was still in the midst of processing a lot of what happened. Um, so, so yeah, really, that's a really complicated answer to your question. No, that's, that's a brilliant answer, but also it does explain why, why your promo for the album was brilliantly in depth and really coherent. And it's because you've had that distance from the process of creating the album and then sort of had a time to come to terms with a lot of the emotion in it so that you can you can talk about it not in an unemotional way at all because obviously it's still deeply personal but in a way that enabled you to explain why you've created this piece of art and that you hope it speaks to people but yeah you don't dissolve into a yeah a blubbering it, wreck every I, time yeah i'd had the time and the help that i needed to, to not see, see it as a substitute for therapy and i think Perhaps not everyone has such a great group of people around them to take care of their mental health when they're in this industry. And I, I was supremely lucky that I did have that. And I, I, I shudder to think what would have happened had it, I released it immediately after finishing it. I think that would have been a, a, a massive mistake. Um, and I probably would not have been able to play it live at all. I think, you know, I'm not certain I'm going to sit and play 5am every night. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, that would be emotionally draining. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that you, you, you were, I think, there the day that I recorded it live in Abbey Road and everybody had to stop halfway through the first rehearsal of it because it was, dif it was difficult. Um, and I just have to be aware and mindful of that. It's like, it is not my job as a musician, as an artist, to sacrifice myself on the pyre. For other people's enjoyment you know it's well, not that's, that's such an interesting question about what is your job as a musician so one of my other questions that really struck me when i was listening to the album thinking about influences then checking out the spotify playlist which i, I found very interesting and some of it was like well of course and others of it were like uh -huh, okay but what struck me is whether when people talk to you as the anchoress there is a wish from people, I guess I mean music industry or journalists, there is a wish to ask you more about your female influences than, for example, Depeche Mode or The Associates. Do you, do you get the impression that people want you to talk about Kate Bush or Tori Amos or, or PJ Harvey more than they want you to talk about your love of the Manic Street Preachers or your love of Depeche Mode? Definitely, yeah. And I think before this album, that happened all the time. Um, and that was possibly my own fault. What I learned massively was it really matters what you put in a press release. It really matters what you put in your biog. And I purposefully foregrounded all of the male influences for this record because that's what they were. They were Billy McKenzie. Mm. They were The Cure. They were Scott Walker. They were Depeche Mode. And there was no point in me pretending otherwise. And it was amazing to me to see what difference that made to the lines and dots that were joined with other people. You sort of just have to plant the seed, I think, just steer them in the right direction away from Kate Bush. And it's enormously flattering, obviously, to be compared to Kate Bush. She's a brilliant producer and writer and artist. But I don't sound like her vocally in any way. You know, I don't have that high pitched soprano voice. That's absolutely not my voice does sound a lot more like Scott Walker. <laughs> and David, David, I sound like David Sylvie and I get that a lot from people. It's like, I don't sound like Kate Bush. So 
I think it's often a visual reference that they're saying, oh, you look a bit like her, your aesthetic is a, is a little like her. Well, surely you'll get that for Tori Amos as well. You're sat at a keyboard and you have red hair, my dear. You must be Tori Amos. Which again is why in Show Your Face, the first video that came out for the album, I was like, I'm, it's got to be a guitar track. I wanted yeah. to set fire to a piano for it because it felt <laughs> like... I remember having that discussion with the guy that was managing me at the time, who, who ended up not managing me for the campaign, but he was like, yeah, brilliant idea. We'll have you on top of the piano, smashing it up and set fire to it, just so people forget about what they think that you do. Um, yeah. Never forget that guitar was all over that first album too. You know, I only started playing the piano like six years ago. I played the guitar for many years before that. <laughs> yeah, but it, it is funny because if I'd been asked what your major instrument was, I probably would have said piano, but I loved the imagery of you in a fantastic trouser suit with a guitar strapped on you. And, you know, I thought that was really powerful because it was about saying, no, this is this is me now. Yeah, I mean, I think I only played piano actually on two songs on the album. That's it. Everything else is guitar and synths. Um, and it was about, I guess, there was a little bit of me that was thinking, oh, God, maybe people that like the first rapper won't like it. But you hope that they come with you. You hope. Well, well, I was looking at your listener numbers on Spotify and you've got an awful lot more for the second album than the first. So I'm assuming that's most of the first plus a lot of extra people. We'd have a lot more if Spotify would have supported the release in any way, but I'm not on a label that they recognise. So uh, yeah, they pretty I mean, much black, they blackballed me. Well, they, and also I don't support what they do and you do get no. blacklisted somewhat. So you didn't well, play physical product. Physical product is actually really strong in, in your sort of fandom, isn't it? You know, people want to buy the vinyl. They want to buy the special editions. They want your signed lyric sheets or your signed prints. And Yeah, you I know. mean, we, we went to number nine or was it number eight in the physical chart the week the album came out, which is obviously insane. Just mad considering retail was shut as well that was mad <laughs> but, it was yeah. very impressive i mean you must you must have been very proud of that so going back to spotify just because i was looking at it the other day when i was i was looking at things i mean your most popular track on spotify is unravel how how do you feel about that do you feel that that's a good representation of your body of work for people who maybe have listened to more to that than anything else yeah, I mean, it's one of my personal favourites off the album because it's got a little bit of everything on. You know, it starts with the kind of false start, you know, the strings and vocal. People think, oh, it's going to be something soft. And then it kicks in to be this kind of synth dance track. And um, I think it's a perfect, it's got a little bit of a flavour of the whole record in it. I'm very fond of it. Again, that was the song that I almost kicked off the record because it no. was a real tough nut to crack production wise. Um, but yeah, it's one of my favourite songs on the album, so I'm very pleased that it's the most listened to track. And I loved making the video for it as well. You know, the, the whole expression of that song was really important to me, um, of where it kind of sat in this suite of songs, I guess, about loss. And it, it's, it, you know, it's maybe the only love song on the record. But it's so about... it's, it's a good it's a good starter track for people that might want to get into the anchoress a bit more. I think so. After the first thirty seconds, yeah. <laughs> Again, Don't I fast forward the first well, thirty I, seconds. Well, I just make it I like it. to make it difficult for people to get into what I do and and frustrate the record company by, you know, having that kind of this doesn't really work on radio, Catherine. To have thirty seconds of cello before the song starts. <laughs> well. I mean, I'm, I used to play the cello, so obviously anything that starts with the cello is going to 
be perfect for me. <laughs> I think it's just that, you know, that sense of immediacy that everybody kind of wants these days is really, um, I just like to play with that a little bit and to um, maybe it's self-sabotage on some level. But <laughs> well, no, I think it's, it's you partly being really clear about what it is that you want to do. I mean, you know, there is a slight sense of being willfully awkward, but then <laughs> me, who, never. Wa- who wants to do the mainstream thing? I mean, it's not, it's not like you're setting yourself up to be a mainstream pop artist, are you? You, you are an artist and a musician. You are not somebody in search of being on the front of every magazine and, and, you know, well, that's why I was so surprised at how well the album was done as well, because it was just completely exactly what I wanted to do. And everybody said, this is a really dark record, Catherine. You're talking about things that people don't feel comfortable hearing about. There was no expectation for it to do as well as the first record, let alone as well as it's done. So I kind of feel a little bit vindicated that maybe we don't give audiences enough credit, I think. I think that's absolutely true. I I think this idea of what people want often falls on its arse, to be honest. I mean, I'll give you my favourite example of that. British entries in the Eurovision Song Contest. (laughs) If people would stop trying to dictate what they think people want a Eurovision song to sound like, they might actually put something decent in as the British entry. I'm very, wi- I'm very willing to have a stab at it, should anyone <laughs> want to have a song with swearing and, and death in it. Works for Norway. Well, I mean, isn't that the interesting thing about the winners in the last few years? They haven't been Europop. Exactly. Yeah, I'm up and for I... it. I'm waiting for that call. <laughs> Excellent. Well, what else have you got in the offing? I mean, actually, I was going to say to you, I kind of got a couple of other questions. I mean, one is obviously, you know, you've said that you're taking things a little bit easier, but I bet you've got some ideas developing and some possible collaborations developing and what have you. But the other question, so I'm going to roll this all into one, is do you feel like it's getting to be a better time to be a woman in music? I know you're very active. Well, you're active in terms of trying to represent yourself and other women you not only are you a patron of music venue trust but you're involved in the featured artist coalition you're involved in the ivis academy you know you you are out there working as a musician on behalf of the musician community and so i just wondered what you felt where you thought we'd got to in terms of activism and representation as a woman as a female musician? Honest answer, and I, I did a panel on this the other day at the careers, um, online careers um, festival. Honest answer, no, I don't think, I, I don't mean to be negative, but I have to be honest. The music industry has not yet had its Me Too moment. We are due a reckoning. And yes, there are lots of wonderful gestures in the right direction. There are small incremental changes happening but you talk to any woman off the record who's involved in the music industry and it's a horror show out there still. And I know that firsthand too. No one wants to talk about it on the record. Everybody's still worried about the impact on their careers. But no, maybe I'm hopeful that in a decade or more it will be different. 
but it hasn't happened yet. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we flood the messaging with positivity about the small little wins and victories that there are. Um, it's really complex, the reasons why it is the way it is. It's a complex ecosystem of interdependent things surrounding cultural expectations, sexism, misogyny, and much, much worse. Um, I don't have the answers myself personally, um, apart from, oh, no, I won't say what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> One shouldn't be flippant about, um, about it. It's, it's, the reckoning hasn't happened yet. But it's you feel really, compelled to be part of it. I am so bloody minded about this. I refuse to exit the industry as I've seen most of my friends do so. And so many brilliant, talented women exit because it's too fucking hard to just exist in the climate and just the awfulness that happens every day. Um, I'm clinging on. I'm not going to say there hasn't been moments where I have wanted to exit. And I'm not saying that I won't exit the industry also. Um, but I might kick up a fuss in doing so in the meantime. It's, I, want to be, I want to be hopeful. I do want to be hopeful. And that's why I say, you know, I am involved in the Ivers Academy. I just joined the Senate for them. And there's, we have some few things that we're, we're working on. And I'm trying to be a bit more focused about making those changes that need to happen. And there's wonderful people like Rebecca Ferguson who are working on artist welfare, mental health and abuse in the industry. Um, and I hope to be working with her a little bit more on making actual practical changes. Um, I just guess I'm a little bit sick of all the kind of token gestures and lip service that we pay to making the industry more diverse in every way. Um, and no one wants to hear that. Everyone wants you to be positive about it, but that's, I'm afraid it's just the truth. It, it isn't getting better quickly enough. Um, and I'm not gonna be quiet about it. I didn't really expect a different response from you. <laughs> I do think that you you feel compelled to be part of the change and you know I, I have adult daughters now and I am a bit horrified by the fact that I don't feel like their lives are necessarily any easier than mine were at their age and I'm 30 years older than they are and so I do still feel that societally we have a long way to go for young women having a better life than us but um I suppose my request for you would be to try and weather the industry and keep making music because as much as I think you'd be a brilliant activist, I would really miss you as a musician if oh, you gave that you. up. I would try. I'm not going to say there's, you know, there's definitely times when I do consider for many reasons just going off and doing something else. And I, and I want to say that publicly because I think people don't understand that even with all the success that the album has had, that conditions aren't such that it is really hard to carry on for many reasons, financially, emotionally, mentally, you know, it's tough out there. Um, and there's lots that people can do to make it easier, I think. I think I might have run out of questions because I think, I think because we know each other quite well, a lot of the questions that I had have sort of been covered quite naturally. I, and I know I often go off in massive tangents into areas that I shouldn't as well. See I, see, I feel guilty now for having just said that, even though it's my truth. But I feel bad because I, I don't want people listening to be put off. Absolutely don't want anyone listening to be put off from coming into the industry. But I, I do want people to be forewarned and forearmed in a think of a way that I was not about the realities of what it's like, that it still hasn't really shifted that much. So yeah, I guess with that caveat, just to say I'm not being negative, but I am being realistic. 
Uh, but I think on that, I think like a lot of the a lot of the things that we think are important, at least there's a conversation now, even if progress hasn't been made on things. And also where people are more able to talk about things that have happened to them or their emotions and the reckoning. I mean, you know, you, you have your activism within the music industry, but you also you're producing art that talks about truth. And that's incredibly important, isn't it? You know, I mean, you're, the art of losing is a personal album. And you've shared a whole chunk of yourself with people through making that. And that's a very brave thing to do. And then it's also a brilliant thing to do that it's been met with acclaim and praise and hopefully will lead to further collaborations and further opportunities for you to decide to do something completely different maybe with the next album but you know that sharing a piece of yourself has progressed the anchoress's visibility and career i think it's just so important to just be out there modeling the version of yourself that you needed when you were 12 as well and you know there there wasn't apart from kate bush and she wasn't presented in this way um, in fact, she wasn't, I think she'd exited the industry at that point, you know, producing and writing and doing it yourself. There wasn't anyone visible doing that. So if, if my achievement only is to do that, to be just visibly in people's faces, annoying the hell out of them, saying producer and multi-instrumentalist <laughs> over and over again, because it will make that 12-year-old girl that's listening go, oh, I could do that. And there's yeah. this amazing artist coming through at the moment, Eve Wilder, who I know was a big fan of my first record and she's producing her own stuff and doing it all herself and that makes me feel really optimistic that maybe my role is just to weather all the shit to show that someone a little further down the line can can do it perhaps under easier circumstances and I'm okay with that if that's my lot and I'll try not to grumble too much on the way <laughs> well you you will also have given us some pieces of art that we can all appreciate as part of that process well thank you and i do you know what maybe that's why i am kind of giving myself a little bit of a, a mental rest at the moment it's just, i feel so happy and proud of the art of losing that if that was what i left behind i would feel just enormously satisfied about that you know it's there's nothing about it that i would change and, and i don't think that that's that's a very common experience to have when you make a record Thanks for listening to this episode of Welsh Music Prize Conversations with the 2021 shortlisted bands and artists. Diochan Vaudiaun, Am Rando, at Welsh Music Prize. That's the handle. We'd love to know what you think about the conversations. <laughs>